0: The Latter-day Lives Podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to Episode 29 of the Latter-day Lives Podcast. My name is Sean Rapier. I am your host. And before we get into this week's show... I just want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, January is over. Can you believe it? We're already into February. And uh, I look at the numbers, you know, from time to time, check to see how many listeners we have. And January just blew up. I mean, we've been growing and growing, and that's been a lot of fun. For some reason in January, we had almost double the number of listens from what we had in December just amazing growth and so much of that is thanks to all of you Thank you for sharing it with your friends with your family and hopefully we'll we'll keep this podcast growing but I really really appreciate it okay this week on the show my guest is Nick Galletti Nick is a dear friend of mine we've actually only known each other for a few months but we've come we've become quite close friends and he is an amazing guy he is an icon in uh, LDS podcasting and has uh, just really knows what he's doing when it comes to, to podcasts in general. He's got a brand new podcast out. He's going to tell you all about it, as well as his documentaries, his books, and everything else. Great conversation. And this week in my Latter-day Life, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my priceless slippers. I've got a pair of slippers that are that are just priceless to me. So great show in store. Thanks so much for tuning in. And without any further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. My guest today is a noted podcast host. He is also an author and a documentarian. The guy does it all. You're the king of LDS media. And I even cook. And you cook. That's right. We got to talk about cooking today. Nick Galetti, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So glad that you're here. We've been looking forward to this. Nick and I have been talking about him being on the show now for months. So I'm very excited. I'll put in a, a little bit of history before we get into the episode. Yeah. That uh, Nick and I were introduced by John Dye. John basically said to me, "If you want to meet the guy who knows everything about podcasting, you've got to meet Nick." And that's <laughs> uh, since then we we've become quite good friends. And I'm just glad to have you, Nick. So welcome.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: So, what is the essence of Nick? Tell us a little bit about yourself. The essence of Nick.
1: Um, I have a lot of hobbies. Yeah. What do they say? The Jack of All Trades, Master of None.
0: I think you're master think, of many. Well,
1: that would be very kind of you to say.
0: Yeah. Where'd you grow up, Nick?
1: I was born in Los Angeles, California. I've heard of that place. More space more specifically, Northridge. Northridge if yes. you know where Northridge is. I was actually born in the hospital. That if you see the old Doogie Hauser episodes, that, that old TV show. Yeah, I
0: remember Doogie Hauser So sure. the
1: the hospital that they have in Doogie yeah. Hauser, the credits. That's no the kidding. hospital I was born in.
0: Yeah. Northridge, most well known for the earthquake. Yes. That was the epicenter of the big quake.
1: That's right. And I actually went to school at Cal State Northridge. Yeah. Uh, right after that. Yeah. And uh, all the buildings were kind of condemned because there was asbestos and yeah. it was quite a scene.
0: What were you like as a high school kid? Like,
1: I was different than I am now for sure. Yeah. Some people don't grow very much. I say I grew, but kind of sideways. I'm still immature in some ways.
0: but <laughs> I like that. I grew sideways. <laughs> I,
1: I was incredibly sarcastic back then, and I've only shaved a little bit of that off. I was about to
0: say, you're now fairly fairly <laughs> I've, well I've sarcastic. I've honed it
1: a little bit.
0: So, out of full disclosure, Nick's wonderful <laughs> wife is sitting here and started yes. laughing when he compared himself to being very sarcastic then.
1: <laughs> yes. She's going to keep me on, in line, which is what her job is, That's right? That's perfect, perfect. So I was a musician a lot in high school. And in middle school, I learned trumpet, guitar, piano, drums.
0: Holy cow. And
1: so I was, I was spending a lot of time. I was a band nerd. I was in marching band. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time doing anything related to music in high okay. school. And that was pretty much what most people on the outside saw.
0: Was, was music a talent or a passion? Was it natural in you or did you just love it so much?
1: If you ask my mother, it? I had a talent for trumpet. Yeah. But, and she never lets me forget it even to this day. I, it's both. I have yeah. I have a talent for certain parts of it. Yeah. And uh, there it goes with the jack of all trades. I mean, like I said, I, I, I know piano, but I don't know it well. I know drums, but I don't know it well. And enough to make my own jingles and things like that and when I got older. So I I would say there's a talent for it, but it's not like an accelerated, I'm going to be the top of every class. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you still play?
1: I still play guitar. Yeah. And drums and a little bit of piano.
0: See, I play drums, but I'm terrible at it. I just love it so much. I force myself to play.
1: Yeah. We had to walk past your set. I'd love to hear something a little later.
0: Yeah. I leave it out just so people think I'm cool. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. Too late. Um, so, in high school, that was your passion, music, which yeah. you've obviously parlayed that, and we'll talk about that in a bit, how that kind of applies, and uh, where'd you go after high school?
1: I actually, because I grew up in Oceanside, California. So beautiful. In fact, your your past guest, Garth, yeah, Smith, Garth Smith, was in my stake.
0: I interviewed him in Oceanside, yeah. in his home, yeah.
1: So, I we moved down to Oceanside when I was about 10 or 11, mm-hmm. and so I... Kind of call that more my home than Los Angeles. Yeah. But when college came around, I had a year before I went on my mission that I went to Cal State Northridge. Yeah. And so I did a music program there, which helped me determine that I didn't want to do music the rest of my life. (laughs) Uh, And not because I don't love music, but because at some point you have to commit yourself to some part of music. And I didn't enjoy it that specifically.
0: Do you think it's easier for especially young men, now that the age is 18, that they can just graduate and go? Do you, do you wish we had had that experience versus the no, 19-year-old type? No, not me.
1: I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it for people that, that want to go at 18. Yeah. But I I really appreciated having that year away from home and being able to, I don't want to say find myself, but to make sure that a mission was the right thing for me to do.
0: Okay, interesting. See, I was barely alive by the time I turned 19. (laughs) I almost did not survive that year. So for me, it was tougher.
1: Well, see, the thing that's funny about that, and I'm going to back up a little because this is something that I'm actually proud of in a very nerdy way. You'll find that a lot of things that I'm proud of are kind of nerdy. That's awesome. So for me, one of the things in high school that I would say was also a A hallmark of my high school experience was I was the only kid that had been to... Because I had an early morning seminary. Yeah. It's not like here in Utah where it's in middle school. So early morning seminary, I never missed a day. All four years, what perfect attendance? All four years, that can't be true. It is absolutely you true. Never missed a day. I of never early missed a day. I've here. got the. I even have the graduation program that shows that it was perfect attendance oh all goodness. four years. And there was even a funny story with that because I was so dedicated to doing that. I, I don't know why, but I just did. It was something I chose That's awesome. to do. It's great. Uh, but we had a, a ski trip to Big Bear, and it was going to be for our young men's group. And I arranged to go to seminary in Big Bear, <laughs> so that I wouldn't miss <laughs> on, even on our ski thing. weekend. So, that
0: is, let me guess—you went alone?
1: Well, my young men's leader drove me, but yes, yeah, the there other, were no other young men. None saying, of the other young men were that. I demand at five thirty a.m. It's
0: amazing, Nick. <laughs> so, see, now I'm starting to understand a lot of things about you better. You have a very scholarly side.
1: I have. A, well, okay, I'll take that.
0: Yeah, you do. You really do. I mean, I knew that about you before. But this just illuminates it a little bit.
1: Okay. Some people would call it scholarly. It's very scholarly. Scholars wouldn't,
0: but okay. (laughs) So then from there, you head out on a mission. Where'd you go? I
1: was called to the Louisiana Baton Rouge mission from 97 to 99.
0: Amazing. Tell us a little bit about Baton Rouge. What do you love about it?
1: There's a lot. Yeah. Easily, I would say that the thing that I've kept with me the most are a couple of the people I baptized I'm still friends with. I oh, visited awesome. them when I got to go down there this year. But I've also kept the food yeah. as part of it. And so there's more to it than that. That's a very oversimplified version, no, but that's great. but I would say that on a day-to-day basis, yeah. I mean, we make Cajun food at our house at least once a week. That's awesome. So it's never left.
0: So I've spent some time in Baton Rouge. I found the I found there to be a lot of need for the gospel in Baton Rouge. That is there a, a very of,
1: political way of saying that.
0: There are a lot of <laughs> neighborhoods that, that really need the gospel. I mean, there are a lot of people. There are a lot Absolutely. of people in Baton Rouge where, you know, it's, it's interesting. I've spent time in Baton Rouge and in New Orleans. And when you go to downtown New Orleans, you know, it's, you kind of see it the same way you see downtown Las Vegas or Manhattan or whatever. When you get to the outskirts of Baton Rouge, once you're out of... Beautiful city, by the way. Yeah. Baton Rouge is gorgeous.
1: The whole state's really got a beautiful... Yeah.
0: But then you get outside and some of those neighborhoods... There are people in a lot of need. Did you see a lot of things you maybe hadn't seen in Oceanside and in Northridge?
1: Not in in LA there were plenty of ghettos. Sure. So sure. if you're talking ghetto.
0: Well, yeah, but not in Oceanside as much. No, there I mean, were in Oceanside. There
1: yeah. were some. In fact, my wife actually came outside of one. Yeah. Um, but it was it was one of those things where the stereotypes became more real. Yeah. And so, in that case, yes, there was many opportunities for service. There were a lot of good people that wanted to be or were very comfortable talking about Jesus with you. Yeah, and we were preacher man, and yeah, you know, we we went in and around and met some great people, had some wonderful experiences, and I am in the category of people that opened their mission call going, "Wow, I did not see that coming," <laughs> but. Afterwards, felt like there's nowhere Best else I could have gone. World. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's awesome. So you come home from your mission. Where'd you go from there?
1: I went back to Oceanside and yeah. I started going to school, and uh, that's where you come to find out, my wife and I were in the same state growing up, and we never met each other. And so, if I could jump into the story of how Please, we met, I'm dying and to hear it. The there was a friend of ours, a mutual friend, that had gotten his mission call. And we were going to a friend's house to have the farewell back when they, you know, had big parties. I don't know oh, if they yeah. still do that anymore. But they had a big party in the backyard. And sure. I had just broken up with my girlfriend the day before, but I showed up and was talking with some friends. And this girlfriend, I was actually the drummer in her band. Nice. And we had a gig coming up the next Sunday or Saturday. At the Del Mar Fair, which was now the San Diego County Fair, which is a huge, big deal, huge big deal, and so even though we were split up, I had this commitment to go play for the for the event, and my friend knew that. Yeah. Well, apparently in the background, unbeknownst to me, my wife, my now wife, I should say, went up to our mutual friend and said, "Who is that guy over there?" And she said, oh, that's my friend nick do you want to meet him she goes yeah he's hot
0: okay so and heidi are these real words close Close. that's close. that's the real word yeah he's hot was it maybe more like no no was it was that's it, the true part wait was it was it possibly he looks hot like you're wearing a sweater or was it just <laughs> like someone turned on the air it was hot?
1: summertime okay but no the so thing, he's hot i'm impressed but but see the thing was is he then pulled us together yeah. and said, Hey Nick, this is Heidi, she thinks you're hot. Uh, wow. and, and and so I'm like, wow, okay. Never got that in my life before. So and you very flattering. You
0: proposed that night.
1: No. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it took it took me a lot longer. Yeah. Um than it took her to come to the realization that this was a good thing. And so I'm grateful that she stuck with me. But it took us six months. Awesome. Until I proposed and then uh Six months later, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. Perfect. 2001, we, uh, we got married in the San Diego Temple.
0: It's awesome. So you're coming up on 17 years. Yeah. It's great. And while we're on the subject of family... Yes. You guys have got some kids.
1: We've got five daughters.
0: Isn't that amazing? Five daughters.
1: It is amazing on a number of levels. That's amazing. So is there
0: part of it that makes you want to go, let's just keep going until we hit the sun or no?
1: Everybody's asked us that and... That's what kids number four and five were. Yeah. Was, we'll be okay with with this, but they weren't planned either. So, right. the whole idea of having a son really dropped yeah. after number five, and we were done.
0: Yeah. So, you really are the man of the house. At this point. No question. I've never been that. Never. Ever? ever. I guess for a little while, before we had kids, but. <laughs> Well, that's a pretty pretty amiable uh, position, is it? Good. So you guys are so you guys are down in in oceanside. At some point, you make a trek from uh, not a handcart trek, but a trek a different from kind of trek out to Salt Lake City. You decide this, yeah. is the place in two thousand four,
1: uh, we we had had actually. She, my wife, was a, a property manager for an apartment complex, which is about the only way we could afford to live in San Diego at the time. Sure, and so, but she had our second child. And in what is probably a questionable legal decision, they actually fired her two days after she got home from the hospital. Oh my! Um, It was because they were converting the condos to, or they were converting the apartments to condos. Yeah. But we were without a place, and where most people get kicked out, they have like a thirty-day notice. Yeah. We had you're fired. You're out in a couple days. So we moved into my parents' house and realized that we were in a really tough position. And that was right at the beginning of the big boom of real estate prices. Yeah, But it hadn't hit in Utah yet. So I called up an old mission companion of mine who was a real estate agent up here in Salt Lake. And that was one of the places we were looking, but he found us a great spot. And so we moved.
0: And what year was that?
1: 2004.
0: Wow. So you've been in Utah now 14 years. So here in Utah... It has given you an opportunity to explore your scholarly pursuits.
1: In a way I never thought would happen.
0: Yeah. And they're mostly church-related, most of your, most of your yeah. pursuits. So let's talk a, start out talking a little bit about your books. You are an author. You have uh, two published books that we'll, we'll talk about. Yeah. yeah. So
1: it, the first book is called Tree of Sacrament, and it is actually a product of my mission, it yeah. goes back to a journal entry I had in, in my second-to-last area where I, I simply wrote in this journal entry. It was right after the sacrament was done, I remember. Mm. And I had been studying the Tree of Life dream from Lehi and sure. First Nephi. And I wrote in the journal, I wonder if there's a connection between the symbols of the sacrament and the symbol of the Tree of Life. And, wow. and so that was like October '99. And so, 2008, I finally have this idea filled out enough to fill out a massive tome of 120 pages. And you wrote 120 that's pages off a of
0: correlation that. between the sacrament and the tree of life.
1: Essentially, it's yeah. more than that, but that's the genesis of it. Huh. So I would I did research into the history of if there were sacramental things that were practiced before the actual sacrament, because I would find quotes from like Elder Holland talking about how the sacrament is like our Passover. And I was like, that's interesting. So, I started studying how the Passover and the sacrament might be the same. And so, it seemed like I just went on this quest that every time I'd find a little nugget, it would take me somewhere else. Yeah, And then eventually, I said, you know what, I've got enough stuff here. I could probably get this published. And luckily, I had met... A book publisher, Brett Eborn of Eborn Books, who, great guy, Uh, I was actually doing some video work at the time, and a friend of mine uh, suggested me to him, said, hey, he's looking to do some video work for a, a documentary for a book he published, why don't you go talk to him? So, I actually did the documentaries that we'll talk about in a little bit before the book, or kind of almost at the same time. Mm. So it was my relationship through that that actually got so the book had this, published.
0: So did having that avenue encourage you more to get it published?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Because I would have never thought, oh, I, I'm going to be a writer. Yeah. I mean, you could talk to my high school English teachers, and they would be <laughs> like, no, this guy's not.
0: Was it hard to have the discipline? To write? To write. Yeah, to make yourself really sit down and do it. I think a lot of yeah. people have book ideas, you know? They maybe make it into outline format. Yeah. First four pages.
1: Well, it helped for me that nonfiction seems to work for me. Yeah. I've tried to write fiction and I stink at it. Yeah. But nonfiction seems to come more naturally to me. Mm. And so for that part of it, it wasn't so hard. And as you can tell from my high school seminary experience, I, I really like the gospel.
0: Yeah, of and course. It's something that.
1: that I've I've loved studying and thinking about and on my mission that continued to be something that i studied and thought deeply about and so when when this book idea came out he brett eborn gave me all kinds of resources of people to talk to and and i had people like robert millet who you know some people know who that is at byu he's was a professor for like 30 or 40 years and wrote tons of books and uh you know he said why don't you go talk to this guy and then he he said, "You know, this is a great book. I bet you, my friend Bob Millet would like it." And so all these That's amazing. there was a few BYU guys that sort of passing it around, and I thought maybe I've got something here. Yeah, and so it eventually, you know, got published with the endorsement of a few of these guys, and I was really floored because it wasn't anything I was thinking would ever get published.
0: How how was it holding your own book? Like once it was in published format, was there that sense of pride and accomplishment? Like wow, this is my book. It's got my name on it. Yeah. Yeah, and I've even got like a
1: Facebook picture of me holding it up with this huge okay. grin. It's awesome. But yeah, it it is, but it also isn't because then that becomes great. Now that I've published it, what do I do with it? How do yeah. I get people to read this? Right. And uh and you know that that kind of led into podcasting a little bit, which well, again, I I'm jump getting jump ahead into, of myself.
0: But. No, I definitely want to jump in that podcast, but I want to cover your second book cuz okay. with my ADD, I'll forget. No, no, that's fine. So tell us about your other book.
1: So this came out last year. This okay. is, book is called D&C 4, A Lifetime of Study and Discipleship.
0: Did you have to memorize D&C 4 when you were a, yes. a
1: priest? Uh, well, on my mission, more oh, specifically, mission. yeah, we recited that yeah. at the beginning of every Zone Conference and whatever meeting we had, we recited it. So, it was very much on my mind, but actually, and I put this story in the inside flap of the book, there was in, I think, 2014... President Monson, right after he changed the age to 18, the next general conference, he came out and said, we could really use some money to support this surge in the missionary program. Mm. And so, he called on members of the church to donate to the missionary program. And I had no money (laughs) to, to give. So, I thought, but you know what? If I can put together a book with some stuff on D&C4 and get some other people to contribute, then we can take the money that we get from the book and donate that to the missionary department. Yeah. And so it was in the middle of that general conference, I started emailing a few people that I knew that were good writers, because I had been starting a podcast with LDS writers and I knew a bunch, Yeah, that I said, would you be willing to contribute a chapter? And so we all took a different chapter and what we did was we did a different take on DNC4 so one person talked about DNC4 with respect to the eternal family oh wow interesting and then interesting. DNC4 as it applied to the relief society and were these all mostly that kind of scholars stuff. no it was a mix yeah we have one in there on on DNC4 and the 12 step program
0: oh that's awesome and
1: so there's there's so many deep principles and... DNC 4, it's seven verses. Yeah. But we got 220 pages worth of content.
0: And they're big verses, though. I mean, they're... Oh, they're
1: not, okay. It yeah. doesn't even take up a full page in the scriptures. But you got
0: how many pages?
1: 220. It's a big book. And so we we typically talk about DNC 4 as a missionary scripture, right? But the idea of this was to really expand it, because Joseph Fielding Smith even said mm. that there is so much to study the reason and we call it a lifetime of study and discipleship is he says that you can't even technically learn everything you can from DNC4 in the lifetime. Wow, so I've never read that before. It's, so, it's on, right on the front cover of the book. It's
0: That's awesome. When,
1: when I read that, I was like, okay, this is what we should do. This is the topic. This is what we should write on. And so it's out. It's available. If you go to... For behold the number four behold.com you can or .org, excuse me
0: forbehold.org
1: dot org uh, or you can just search it in Amazon yeah um, we can put a link to it but we'll have a link to it on the Facebook page so the people that contributed all participated because they wanted to be able to donate to the missionary program too
0: so the proceeds go to the missionary program. Mm-hmm. That's such a neat way to donate.
1: That was the only way we could has afford people, to. Has
0: people studying <laughs> and donating. Exactly. So around this time, you alluded to this this podcast that you were doing. Tell yeah. us a little bit about The Good Word and how that came about. My
1: relationship with Brett Eborn was such that he he bought a new store, downtown Salt Lake. It's a 30,000 square foot store. Mm. It used to be Sam Weller's bookstore for people that right. know that. yeah. And so he bought this place, and I said, man, you got all these... Books. This huge location. It's centrally located, and I thought to myself, "There's got to be a way that we could promote LDS authors using this space."
0: And taking a step and back for our our guests outside of Utah, especially who don't know Sam Weller's. Sam Weller's became known because it had these like texts from the 1800s. Oh, rare books! The most all that. rare, and you there are glass panels, like mm-hmm. things that are locked up that price tags of 3000 5000 7000 dollar books. Yeah. I mean really if you want to know and it's kind of specializing in LDS faith books.
1: Well there's it's actually can be any genre but they're, yeah. they 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 are a rare book collector as yeah. well as used and they've got all a lot of stuff. fascinating books there. It'll be That's like great,
0: but maybe a book that isn't even fascinating, but it belonged to someone from yeah. LDS history and has their handwritten notes in it. Yeah, and, exactly. It's a neat place. So
1: go on. So anyway, so I got together with him and said, "What if we did a podcast out of your store where we interviewed LDS authors and had them come and do a book signing after their interview? Why not? Right? Seems like a great idea." So we found a little nook in the corner of this weirdly shaped store and converted it to a little room for podcasting. And so we would interview, sometimes two or three times a week, we would interview LDS authors that were promoting their book. And part of that, though, was that I felt like I wanted to have a place to promote my book. I didn't know where to promote my book. Yeah. So this became a little bit of what I wanted as an author as well. And so, yeah, we did that for about three and a half years. Wow. And um, I think it was 160,
0: 170 episodes. Can people still find that podcast?
1: Yeah, it's at goodwordpodcast.com. Awesome. And uh, I would say that it's, it's been about a year and a half since I've done anything mm-hmm. with that one because I moved on to yeah. doing podcasting for Fair Mormon, but it was great. It helped me really cut my teeth on, on podcasting.
0: Was it ever intimidating with some of these scholars? Did you ever did you ever have to say, "Whoa, let's pump the brakes"? I'm not sure what you're talking about. If
1: it was, it didn't come out in the moment. Yeah, it would. I mean, I think going into some interviews, I was definitely nervous on yeah. some of them and then some of them i was they're not all scholars either you know some of them are fiction sure, authors and are.
0: so yeah. not all the writers were writing about lds themes they just no. were writers who were lds yep that's it and it's the good word podcast yeah that led you into the fair mormon podcast yes. how'd you get involved with the good folks at fair mormon
1: i actually interviewed one of the authors from fair mormon they pr- published a book on evidences for joseph smith's prophetic mantle, essentially.
0: Tell us a little bit about what Fair Mormon is for those who aren't acquainted.
1: So, Fair Mormon is an organization, it's been around for over 20 years, but they do what's called apologetics, which is derived from the Greek word apologia, which means in defense of. So, apologetics, or at least Mormon apologetics, is in defense of Mormon teachings, doctrines, whatever.
0: Yeah.
1: So, Fair Mormons podcast was interviews with guests that were forwarding either scholarship or an article, something, that they were doing in defense of the Mormon Church. And one of their authors, one of their authors was Mike Ash, and I interviewed him for my Good Word podcast. Yeah. And they, of course, listened to it, because they wanted to hear what was being said. Sure. And they said... We, we like what he's doing. Let's see if he's willing to come and do it for us. So they extended the invitation, and that was that. I said, yeah, sure, let's try it. How long did you do Fair Mormon? It was actually a year and a half that mm-hmm. I did Fair Mormon. And it was, it was a very rewarding experience, but it was incredibly exhausting. Yeah. I was doing about four episodes a week. Oh, wow. And these were not light episodes either in the sense that they were imagine. over a half an hour, some of oh. them. Yeah. And they were dealing with these scholarship yeah. subjects. So I was digesting tons <laughs> of information. Sure. And they didn't make me do that, by the way. I want to make sure it's the, yeah. the, they weren't slave drivers. I was my own slave driver. Sure. I, I was overdriven, over-responsible over, yeah, over responsible for that. And And so I did that for a year and a half. They honored me in 2015 with the John Taylor... Defender of the Faith Award. It's just a, something they do every wow. year, but they they've the people that are in Fair Mormon vote on who they think contributed, and it has got to be a awesome. significant way. Oh, it's great! Yeah, I, I was very honored.
0: When did you start doing the LDS Perspectives podcast? Well, when
1: I ended up stopping doing Fair Mormon, which I think was in July of 2016, mm. I needed a break. And so it wasn't until two thousand, the beginning of 2017 that actually Book of Mormon Central came along oh, and right. asked me to do podcasting for them. And it was a year into doing podcasting for Book of Mormon Central that an old fair Mormon colleague started up LDS Perspectives. And asked me to do some audio work and some hosting and things like that for them. And it was great. Again, it was kind of a continuation of dealing with scholars and talking to them about their work. Less apologetic tone, just more talking about scholarship. Yeah. But
0: It's a great podcast. It's still going. Yeah, it's still going. And it's, it's really some of the authors they have on. And they tackle these amazing themes that at the beginning of the episode, I quite often think, well, you can't do a full episode about that. Oh yeah! And then an hour later, I go, "It's over already." Are you kidding me? It's it's really an interesting podcast.
1: Well, on top of that, I'm I'm now into podcasting in general. About this is going into my seventh year as a podcaster, but when I looked back, I have done over 600 podcast episodes.
0: That's so amazing. And
1: I would say over half of that, probably two thirds of it, had to do with LDS scholarship. So I actually feel like while I didn't get like a formal degree or anything (laughs) in anything scholarship-wise, I felt like I learned so much in that time. Just talking to these people and getting to know them was an amazing opportunity.
0: What a rich experience. One of the things that impresses me about you is that you, like me, are a very traditional Mormon, it's amazing. You and I have these conversations a lot. (laughs) I should, I should tell the listeners. Nick and I talk a couple times a week, but we talk about these things about, you know, very traditional, follow the prophet, and and yet your foundation in the faith is so much deeper than mine. Well, I don't know if that's worth measuring the gospel. But uh, I want to, I want to get on to and make sure we have time to talk about your newest podcast. But I don't want to gloss over the documentaries you've made, because yeah. they are just fascinating. Tell us about the first one and how it how it came together.
1: So, back to Brett Eborn and Eborn Books. They published a book called Millions Shall Know Brother Joseph Again. And it was, I can't remember the exact page count, but it was a lot of research that went in to the images that have been portrayed of Joseph Smith, including proposed photographs. Because most people don't know this, but there have been... 50, 60 or more photographs that people have submitted to the church saying, hey, this is Joseph Smith. And
0: I had no idea There's that.
1: tons of them. And there's tons of paintings and there's a long history of the art surrounding Joseph Smith. And so this book was a collection of that history. But the author of the book was also an FBI, one of the authors, was an FBI forensics person. Oh, fascinating. And so what he did was he actually took... A scientific approach to analyzing the death masks and most people don't know this part either which is what we go into with the documentary and there's pictures of it in 1928 joseph and hiram's bodies were exhumed
0: okay how did i not know this because who's gonna
1: research that right it's just weird no,
0: you think that's something you know <laughs> that's a big deal
1: well it was the RLDS Church, now Community of Christ, that did it, because the waters from Mississippi right by the where they were buried were starting to come up, and they were okay. worried about it being washed away. So, they were doing it
0: yeah, with right reverence. Sure.
1: Um, but when they uncovered them, they took pictures, and then they reburied them. Mm. And so, we actually have pictures of skulls and bones and all this stuff from Joseph and, and Hiram. And one of the things... Well, they actually dug up Emma, too, um, in the process, because they actually didn't know where they were. Uh, That's a long history. I'm not going to go into that (laughs) side of it, but they didn't know where their bodies were based on grave robbers. And so, they find these, and they assume that the identity of the skulls was a certain person when they didn't know, is 1928. Yeah, How sure. are they going to know that stuff? So part of the book went into the forensics of analyzing which skull was really Hiram's, which one was really wow. Joseph's. And they used that information to determine what he would have actually looked like.
0: So it's forensics, real forensics. Yeah, real forensics. CSI, Temple Square.
1: FBI. <laughs> well, not Temple Square, Nauvoo. Um <laughs> But the... The end result was partially to verify any of the images. So if they got enough information, they could verify an image as being authentic.
0: Do you know how many images have been authenticated, or is that something church doesn't release?
1: The church doesn't authenticate. They're not okay. in the authentication business. In fact, they, their press release surrounding this um, this discovery, if you will, was very clear. We do not authenticate photographs of people. So if it's Joseph Smith, great. If it's not whatever. Great. So, there was a daguerreotype, which was an old photo type, that was submitted Mm. and said, we think this might be it. It was in the RLDS Church Archives since 1994, and it just sat there, and nobody knew what to do with it, because it didn't look like what people thought. Yeah. And so, the whole crux of this research was, is this a real photograph? So, we called it Picturing Joseph, because it was meant to kind of show all these images and some wow. of this science and how it went into. But it's it's really fun history, too, because there's some stories about Joseph Smith you've never heard before. Mm. And you won't yeah. find him anywhere else.
0: And people can find that documentary on Amazon. On Amazon. It's great.
1: Picturing Joseph. And then
0: after Picturing Joseph, you did another documentary. I did. What was that called?
1: Murder of the Mormon Prophet. It was based on a book of the same name by the yeah. same publisher. Just kind of was in Which that Joseph Smith mode.
0: <laughs> in, in church... I noticed we, we have a tendency to do that, where we release a yeah. book with a video.
1: Yeah. So, this was interviewing scholars that talked about the last six years of Joseph Smith's life, kind of the collusion. It's actually, the, the phrase that we used to use was, you get to learn about Joseph Smith through the eyes of those who killed him. Wow. And so, there were four main bad guys mm. that are often not kind of told as part of the story. But the book that it's based on is like 700 pages. It's just really thorough research and it's it's a really fascinating way to look at what we think is a very common narrative in the church yeah. and, and yet there's more that we can learn about it. It's very, um, I don't want to say it's dark. It's not dark but you have to wrestle with the idea that there was quite a lot of collusion going on to orchestrate what happened in Carthage.
0: Gosh, this is all stuff I just don't know about. So fascinating. That must have been so interesting. We, we could do a whole episode on that. It's just interesting stuff. <laughs> just wanna, go buy the DVD. Or we could just go buy the DVD. Both are available on Amazon. <laughs> That's right. That's the way Sales to do pitch. it. Sales There we go. Uh, so I want to make sure, again, that we've got the time now, because you've got a new venture. Tell us about LDS Mission Cast. How did this come about?
1: Well, you're, you have a hand in this, Sean.
0: A little. A little. Not a finger. little. I have a finger I, in this.
1: I was actually c- contemplating getting out of the whole podcast game. I'm... I was thinking, I could
0: not have that.
1: Well, apparently not, because I I was thinking, oh man, I've done 600 podcasts or more, and I don't know what else I could even say or share, or should I even, or should it be someone else's time? And we had talked about it over the phone, and I said, you know, I've thought about this podcast idea that is designed for missionaries going out, coming home, member missionaries, any of that. And I felt that that was, I, I I say I know the podcast scene pretty well. I know the yeah. LDS podcast scene pretty well. And I know that there wasn't anything out there that specifically targeted that. Yeah. And so I felt that if I was going to do something, I wasn't just going to rehash the same old, same old. And so LDS Mission Cast came about from your encouragement, a sort of lingering, nagging, you can't stop being a podcaster because... Yeah. I don't know why, but I felt that way. You.
0: you have to do it.
1: Well, in a way, it kind of becomes part of your identity.
0: I think it is For is. You're well known as a podcaster. To I mean, some. To many. You don't do 600 episodes and not be well known. <laughs> so it's everything regarding... This is one of the things I love about your concept, because originally when we had talked, it was a lot narrower. When we first yes. talked, it was preparing missionaries to go out yeah. and welcoming missionaries home. And now it's broadened into mission work, whether that's your award mission leader, you are an average Joe like me who just may want to <laughs> invite, a, invite a neighbor to church. Who, and it's all about missionary work. So it's taking guests and topics and approaching it from a missionary point of view. It is. And who did you interview for the very first episode? Yeah,
1: the very first episode, I was privileged to meet the director, writer, and producer uh, Blair True, who is the of uh, the Meet the Mormons franchise, I should say, yeah, uh, so the Meet the Mormons franchise was put together by him and hosted by Jenna Kim Jones, stand up comedian and this particular episode featured the story of a man that they called the Craftsman, His name is Danny Sorensen, but he 's kind of the second to last, possibly the last of the Meet the Mormons stories. And so I got to interview them about his story, about what it was to make this "Meet the Mormons" franchise. But we also took it on as the: How has this helped missionary work? How has this impacted missionary work? And did you feel like you were missionaries as you were filming this? That kind of yeah, I'm
0: a very mission angle. Yeah, it's fantastic. I got to hear the first episode last night, and it is just excellent. It's inspiring, it's exciting what you're doing with it, and we get to play a little bit of a part of it with with Latter-day Lives right now, which is that we're recording some secondary material with our guests that we have in. We had Joel Bishop on the show last week, and while we had him on the show, we talked to him about some of his mission experiences, and that's on LDS Mission Cast, and I'm just honored and thrilled to be a part of it. Um, A side note, so I don't forget, for our listeners who have been with us from the start, you know that for a long time we had fairly sketchy audio. From week to week. We had a couple of weeks where it's almost unlistenable because I really don't know anything. Nick, in addition to all these creative endeavors, is also a sound expert, legitimately knows everything about sound. In fact, when he came Whoa, in, not first everything. Thing, first thing he did when he walked in was started uh, tweaking things on the two microphones we're using right now. But you'll notice over the last several weeks, over the last couple of months, that our sound has been really solid. And, and very good, and that's thanks to Nick, because I switched microphones, and one day I called him about 27 times, saying, what about <laughs> this? What if we go that direction? So I owe it all to you, Nick, so it's great. So where does LDS Mission Cast... Oh, tell us about your co-host.
1: Oh, well, this is another connection to your show. Uh, a previous guest of yours, Kelsey Edwards. Yes. I I'd never met her before, hadn't heard the name before, so you introduced me to her in that sense. But I was listening to her voice, and I said, wow, she's got a very nice voice. Yeah. So I contacted her and said, I think you should do a voice demo. Let's record a voice. I'm a sound engineer, so I, I hear things that most people don't care for. Anyway, but the uh, I, I said, let's go record a voice demo because you should be doing voice work. And at the time, I wasn't thinking, hey... I need a co-host for LDS Mission Cast, and I didn't even know she'd served a mission because it, it, it never came up. It didn't in our come up. Shows what an interviewer I am. So, well, no, I mean, it, it I don't know how up. people forward that stuff, but she had served a mission in Alabama. Come to find out, as we were talking, and so I said, "You know what? Then how would you like to be co-host?" And so that's wasn't planned that way, but that's
0: another connection to Latter Day awesome. Lives. So awesome. Well. So this is going to come out every week. It is. We're kind of toying on what day of the week. Yeah,
1: I don't want to do it on Mondays because I don't want to step on your toes. No. And plus, I want to. We'd lose all our. I lives want to. <laughs> we get strong on Tuesdays. No, no, no. But I think that we're we're kind of thinking later in the week, and we'll see how that goes.
0: Is there a universal P day? Is there one day that's P-Day you know, around to, the
1: world? I'm trying to get in touch with the missionary department to confirm that there is one. If there is, I don't it, think should there is. it should a it day go out Monday. on P-Day. It should, but it might Monday be Monday. It might be Monday. Monday was
0: P-Day in my mission. Yeah, it so, was for me too. So it could be Monday. If you need to do it Monday, put it on Monday. We'll do the... Uh, the The double hit, the bang bang. <laughs> well, be all right. Missionaries aren't supposed to listen to podcasts on their exactly. mission, exactly. So, so don't do the, that. They're not our target don't audience in that it. sense. Yeah, exactly. we won't fight it if it happens. Yeah, gotcha. Well, uh, we are excited for LDS mission. Cast. So am I. I mean, really, it's exciting, and to focus on the work and you continuing. When you look at what a missionary you've been, and how many people have listened to your various podcasts and the way that you built the kingdom. It's awesome, and you can tie almost everything you do back into the church, and it's one of the things I just admire and love about you. I think it's great.
1: Well, thank you. I just just to brag a little bit, I Please actually do. passed the one million downloads of episodes that I was a host in. No
0: way, over yeah. a million Over times. a million downloads. Yeah, and after this podcast, you'll be a million and four. <laughs> It'll be awesome. No, I'm, just I'm happy for those four. We have a lot of listeners. No, it's... <laughs> It's awesome. Well, well. so LDS Mission Cast yes. is the podcast, mm-hmm. and it can be found on Facebook, iTunes and wherever. Mm-hmm. Follow you on Facebook for sure. but uh, And then LDSMissionCast.com yes. is the website. Absolutely. And so go check it out. The first episode is available. It's ready for download, and we'll have links to Nick's other projects on our Facebook page, uh, as always on the Latter Day Lives Facebook page. Nick, it's exciting, and I can't wait... To hear more and to be a small part of it is just awesome. Yeah, thank you. We so appreciate you coming in. We're going to end the way we end all of our episodes, which is asking, see, you've listened to the podcast, so you know. A lot of the guests have never heard the podcast. No, I listen all the time. The question catches them off guard. But, Nicoletti, what does being a member of the church mean to you?
1: A side story to this, uh, I'll tell you, is when we were at the screening for the Meet the Mormons thing, we got asked for a little special, what, what, what do they call it? It was, uh, you know, when you walk out of a movie premiere and they put the uh, camera on you and...
0: Yeah, a little quip, a little... Yeah, just something yeah, positive the, about it. Yeah. And
1: they, they, Review. Yeah, they were asking us all these things, you know, what, what does being a member of the church mean to you? And these people were walking around, YouTubers and all this. And it really gave me a chance to think about my answer Yeah, in coming on this. And so being a member of the church for me means that I will be with my spouse and children for eternity. But it also means that there is literally nothing that can be withheld from me as long as I keep the commandments. There is nothing that that I can't do. And the church has taught me that. The church has been the, the vehicle for empowering every part of who I am today.
0: What an awesome answer. Wow, I can tell you a thought about that. Okay. That's that's really deep. I mean, it really is. It's a big deal. The podcast is LDS Mission Cast. You can check it out on Facebook or LDSMissionCast.com or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music or on Stitcher. Stitcher and TuneIn and all. Anywhere you get this podcast, you'll also find it. The host is Nick Galetti. Nick great podcaster amazing friend thank you and thank you for sharing your latter-day life with us we appreciate it my thanks to nick galetti for being uh, a good friend a great mentor and all the good work he's doing and he and his wife came out and spent some time here in our home recording was just wonderful please go check out lds mission cast great podcast you'll love it This week in my latter-day life, I've been thinking a lot about my own mission and reminded of a pair of slippers that I have that I really love. Uh, I was with Elder Oplinger, who was a greenie, and I was his trainer. Such a great, great companion was Elder Oplinger, and we were in a very poor area. Uh, Even for the area, there was one section that was really, really poor. It was kind of just a muddy hillside. And uh, we went and spoke to a woman. She wasn't interested, but she said, you should go talk to my sister. And we walked up the hill and talked to her sister. And her sister invited us in. And her sister had uh, three kids. Uh, They were around 8, 10, 11. There were two boys and and one girl. And we went up and started talking to uh, this beautiful, beautiful family, And as we started talking to them, sharing the gospel, boy, the kids were so much energy. They were just running around and very loud, and and it was fun. I have to say it was a really fun family. But the mother really latched on to the message of the gospel, and they had had a very hard life. Uh, The father of the three children, the husband, he had left the family, and this family was left on their own. No running water, no electricity, nothing. They had really just one big bed in one side of the room. There was a blanket that was hanging to divide. It was just one big room. It was literally like a really kind of a large shed. And then in the living room, there were a few chairs, a small, small table, and a wood-burning stove. And that was it. And the kids had to go down each day and get water. It was really, it was not good circumstances. And we began teaching this family, and they got so into the gospel. And every time we'd show up, boy, these kids... They just loved to see us, but they would fight when we'd say, who wants to say the prayer? I do. No, you said it last time. No, I want to say it. And they'd get into these, these big fights and and uh, funny, funny kids. And one day we were walking up and the kids came running down to us, Elder Rapier, Elder Rapier, come on, we got to go. Come on, come on, let's go. And we didn't know what all the commotion was about, but we went up to their house and, and the mother said, uh, we have a gift for you and handed me... These two pieces of fur, I don't know how else to describe them. They were like pieces of fabric fur, like what you'd buy at a fabric shop, fake fur. And it was white and and a little bit dirty, but on one of the, on one of the pieces, it was stained. It looked like either an iron had burned it or somehow it had gotten stained, kind of a yellowish red. And uh, I was looking at it and the kid said, try them on, try them on. Well, I didn't know what they were. And they grabbed them from me and it turned out that they were slippers. And I said, what is the story with this? And the mother began to explain that they were walking home and they had found this large piece of fur fabric and that all the kids began fighting over it. And it was obviously been thrown away because it was stained. And the kids were saying, no, I want it on the inside of my jacket so I can be warm because I'm never warm enough. And the other kid said, no, I want it sewn into my blanket so I can be warm at night. And they And they started fighting. About what to do with this. And then one of the kids said, Wait a minute, I'll bet Elder Rapier would love a pair of slippers. And all the kids got excited and said, Yes, let's make slippers for Elder Rapier. I don't know why, I'd never mentioned that <laughs> I needed slippers or anything, but uh, sure enough, she said she went down and uh, borrowed some thread. And a needle and some scissors from her sister, and they together as a family cut these into slippers, and they couldn't wait to give them to me. A few weeks later, we baptized that family. I have a wonderful picture of me, and Elder Oplinger, and the mother and the three kids all in, in whites, and and uh, on the day of their baptism. I have another picture of me and Elder Oplinger standing together in our uh, full suits, wearing those slippers. I keep those slippers in my office, and every once in a while when I want to smile, I get them out, and I remember those excited children whose lives were changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are the opportunities a mission affords us, and I'm so grateful for mine, grateful for that experience, and grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all true, folks, and it is wonderful. It changes lives, and that is what is happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for listening. Again, we're so appreciative and uh, just grateful for all of you. I can be reached at Sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. If you want to check us out on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, we can be listened to on pretty much any podcast format, Apple, on Google, on uh, TuneIn, on um, pretty much anywhere you would get your podcasts. So, check it all out. Next week, we've got another fantastic show for you. But until then, please remember, as always, there is a great, big, beautiful world out there. So, go be in it. Just not of it. Thanks for listening.